You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. Israel is striking back after the terror organization attacked Israeli civilians over the weekend. From the eastern side of the Mediterranean, there is a road that snakes its way up for a little over 30 miles, up some places, it seems straight up, up into the mountains uh, to a capital. It's not one of the largest capitals in the world. In fact, it is uh, smaller than most of the capitals of the nations in the world. The amazing thing about it is that it's still here. It should have been brushed off into the dustbin of history a long time ago. Ur of the Chaldees, the great empire, is no more. Uh, Babylon, the great, uh, built by Nebuchadnezzar the great, is no more. Um, Susa, the capital of uh, the Persians, is no more. And if you've ever been to Rome and you've walked down into the Roman Forum, Really, you are walking in ancient Rome there. Um, it is nothing more than a collection of broken columns and uh, pieces of blocks of rock. Uh, Jerusalem should not be standing today, and yet it is. It is one of the amazing things of history. During the days of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, and the armies of Assyria came to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And as they surrounded the city, having destroyed 41, I believe it is, 41 cities of Judah, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And in one night, 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians died mysteriously. We have really no idea. We speculate. We really have no idea why they died. They died. Sennacherib went back to the temple of his God in Assyria, and there at the altar of his God, his own sons fell on him and killed him. It was not long after that that the Babylonians came, and the Babylonians, in three different invasions of Jerusalem in 586, finally destroyed the city under Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, They destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they carted off all of the Jews to Babylon. But in 70 years, the Jews came back and began to rebuild, and Jerusalem became a great capital once again. In that intertestamental period, if you go to the middle of your Bibles, has any pastor ever told you to go to the middle of your Bible? At the blank pages right there? Uh, During that period right there, um, the Seleucids, uh, they overran and took the city of Jerusalem and literally the nation, and they had a stranglehold on it until the Maccabees rose up, overthrew the Seleucids, and in order to come to their own peace within the city, they invited a man in. Uh, They invited an Italian in, and the Italians, like they do, they came and they never left. And they made them a deal they could not refuse. Pompey came, took the city, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, 
walked into the Holy of Holies and took uh, Jerusalem and the nation of Israel as a vassal state of Rome. Herod was put in as a puppet king of Israel, and he rebuilt the temple to a magnificent level. Uh, He rebuilt that temple, and uh, yet it only survived a few years until in 70 AD, Titus and the 5th, the 12th, and the 15th Roman legions to the west and the great 10th Roman legion that stood on the Mount of Olives squeezed the city in a vice, broke through the walls, and uh, the Romans destroyed the city. In fact, they did not leave one rock on top of another, which was the fulfillment of a prophet. It was the fulfillment of a prophet and a prophecy that if you have your Bibles, you can look with me at Luke chapter 19. In verse 41, when we read, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes for this days, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That was Titus and the armies of Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And just uh, really a few years later, under a guy by the name of Bar Kokhba, you have the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is the second Jewish revolt against Rome in 135, 136, 137. Uh, They kill Bar Kokhba and uh, they take the country back. They get the city of Jerusalem And they do this. They build the temple of Jupiter where the temple of God once stood. Uh, They kill the priests. They kill the scribes. They take the scrolls of the Old Testament and they burn them on the altar of Jupiter on the ground where the temple once stood. And Rome showed up with all the plows they could manage to get and they plowed the city under as if to say, this will be no more. They changed the name of Jerusalem to uh, Alia Capitolina, and then they changed the name of the country from Israel to Syria, Palestinia. And you get the name Palestine. Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to look with me, and you really need a Bible. I've told you all that for five years. And you still sit there and look at me. Look at the Word of God in Psalm 83. Now, there's a lot that I'd like to share with you this morning, but I want to make it practical to you uh, as it was practical to them in that day. And what I want you to see is this, is when you're encircled by enemies, let that drive you to a deeper resolution to trust in God. Let that drive you to a resolve that says, I trust God in all these things. Whatever the enemy is, whoever the enemy is, and that's where we're going to find Israel in Psalm 83. Now, I've got, a, I've got more. I don't know that I'll make it through the sermon, and you know what? I'm just going to do the best I can do because I've got so many things I'd like to tell you. 
uh, one, and these are not in my notes right now, so let me just help you with some of this because we're looking at the world situation right now, and I have received calls, some from my own family, uh, wanting some answers to some of this. What, who are the Palestinians? Well, if you go back and you look ethnically and racially, they are an ethnic and racial, uh, uh, ethnically and racially mixed people. They come out, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, they come out of part of Edom and part of Moab. By the way, those are the descendants of Lot. So they are related in a sense, in a way, to the Jews, uh, just as the Arabs are related to the Jews. Uh, but these Palestinians come out of Edom and Moab, Phoenicia and Syria. Uh, so they are racially and ethnically mixed people. That's their background. Uh, you get this whole concept of Palestine from, from Philistine. Philistia was all along the coast of what we know as the land of Israel. And uh, you remember those five great Philistine cities uh, that were there. Uh, Gath happened to be the home of Goliath. And so you, you mix all of that together and you see this has been an ongoing battle for thousands of years. It's not anything new. What you're seeing right now is not anything new. It has been happening for thousands of years, even though we happen to be living and watching it right now. Now, there are the Philistines. They are Muslim, but don't mistake them for Arab. The Arabs are different. You see, this is why I didn't want to do this, because I knew I'd get off on something else. Um, the Arabs are different. The Arabs do come from Ishmael. The Ishmaelites, we'll read about them. They do come from that. Don't confuse the Lebanese with Arab. They're Phoenician. Don't confuse the Iranians with the Arabs. They're Persian. And I have had Iranians tell me we're not Arab, we're Persian. I've had Lebanese tell me when the Syrians were not around, we are not Arab, we are Phoenician. They all have distinct. That's why when you look, and you begin to look at the Arab world and they come out of all these different places, that's why in 600, Muhammad decided that he was going to take all of these warring Arabs peoples from these different tribes and he looked at them and he said, why are we constantly fighting each other? And he looked at Christianity and he saw that the Christians seemed to be together. And he looked at the Jews and he saw that the Jews seemed to be together. And he said the, the, the issue was monotheism. That having a, because all of these various Arab tribes had different gods, about 365. They worshiped a different one every day. And so he chooses one of these gods, makes that the god, and he says, this is who we're going to worship. And uh, as he establishes that, it becomes highly successful because when people see you cut somebody's head off, they generally will agree to do whatever you would like for them to do. And so that's how they conquered. Not only the Middle East, but that's how they conquered North Africa as well. Uh, that is... That is Islam. Now, if, and you say, when I, you know, are you an authority? I'm not an authority, but I have read the Quran and I have done a lot of study. But 
That's where all of this is coming from. The Arabs do not like the Palestinians any more than anybody else. If you didn't see that this week, then you missed it. Uh, when Egypt, who has brokered peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, came to Israel and said, you must open a way for these Palestinians to get to some safety. And uh, Israel said, we will do that. We will open the connection between you and Gaza. And the Egyptians said, oh, no, you won't. Uh, they will not come here. That is the Arab world. I've been to Damascus. I've been in Syria. I have literally looked at uh, Palestinian people uh, in Syria, not far out of Damascus, and they were kept in chain-link fences. They had a tent city, but it was surrounded by a chain-link fence. So what I'm sharing with you, I'm sharing with you so that you gain some understanding. But let me say this. They are people for whom Jesus did die. Now, um, that in background, let me take you and let me show you something about Psalm 83, which I believe is possibly a prelude to the battle that is spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I don't know, I don't, I don't have a view into the future, but I can read the word and gain some understanding. This seems to be a prelude war to what you come to in what is normally known as the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which will precede the battle of Armageddon. So we come to Psalm 89 and you read because it's in the Hebrew text, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the three musical leaders that served Israel under David. You, you remember, I don't have time to take you back through all of these things, but you remember that David now ordered all of the Levitical choirs, the musicians. Uh, he wrote tons of music for them. That's called the book of Psalms. And uh, a, a lot of them. This is one of them right here. So Asaph was one of the three major musicians under David in Jerusalem. The Old Testament says of Asaph, he was David's seer, S-E-E-R. He's also in two places called a prophet. And it seems that he prophesies here. And uh, as much as I have looked this past week, I cannot find any two Old Testament scholars who agree on what battle this is in the Old Testament. Nobody knows. Nobody seems to understand, oh, this was the battle under Jehoshaphat. No, this was the battle under Hezekiah. No, this was the battle under David. No, this was a battle under Solomon. No, nobody seems to understand um, or see alike on which battle this is. To me, it seems that something had happened and uh, what Asaph is doing is basically prophesying of what will be. We'll see. So let me take you and let me show you what Asaph begins to do as he writes this psalm. He speaks of the enemy encircling the people of God, and he says, when the enemy encircles us in order to attack, they are doing this to our God. Now, let me just show you that here. He comes and he says this, oh God, that's Elohim, by the way. He uses two different names for God right here. 
Elohim is the God of creative power. Do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. O God, that is El. That is the smallest name or the oldest name for God, El, and it is concentrated power, or we would say this is the omnipotence of God, uh, the great power of God. This is the God of all power. So he says to him, don't be still. He says, don't be quiet, don't be silent, and don't do nothing. That's what he's saying to him. Speak, say something, and do something. He is calling out in prayer for God to do something because they're under attack. And what he wants him to know is this, is that these people have come and they are not just attacking us, they really, Lord, are your enemies. Look at what he says in verse two. For behold, your enemies make an uproar and those who hate you have exalted themselves. Look over to verse five. He says, for they have conspired against you. So it's obvious here that the psalmist Asaph wants wants God to understand that this ultimately is against him. Whenever there's an attack on the people of God, you can be sure that what underlies that is an attack on God himself. Uh, They hate God. Uh, Folks, I wish I had more time to, you know, to go through some of this, but I don't. But through the Old Testament, you can come to those passages where it clearly states that these people hate God. They make a covenant, he says. They're making a covenant against you. God is the covenant-making God. But now they are coming, and they're making a covenant against him. Look at verse 3. They make shrewd plans. That is, they make hidden plans, crafty plans. They have been planning this in secret. All of this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Everything that we're being told that what has happened a week ago uh, yesterday had been in the plans for years, that they had been making these plans, testing these plans, you know, trying out these plans, seeing how these plans would work. They make shrewd plans against who? Your people and conspire together against who? Your treasured ones. Now, that's a, I'd love to talk about that, but that's a neat expression, isn't it? Do you ever consider yourself a treasure of God? Do you? Well, you are. See, if the preacher didn't tell you that, you'd never tell yourself that. The Word of God tells me that we are the treasure of God. I like to remind people that God loves them, all of us. Well, he comes and he says this, they've come and left us, and they've come and they've said, uh, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. They have conspired together with one mind, look, against you. Again, going back to God, they make a covenant. So all of this is the psalmist saying, God, you need to understand, ultimately, they intend this to be a slap in your face, to defeat us, to wipe Israel off the map, to remove us as a nation is honestly attack, not just against us, but it's against you. But let me tell you something. They want far more than that. Uh, Mohammed al-Zahar, who happens to be an official, Hamas official, senior Hamas official, said this. 
We believe in what our prophet Muhammad said. Uh, Allah drew the ends of the world near one another for my sake, and I have seen its eastern and western ends. The domain of my nation would reach those ends that have been drawn near me. Zahar said in the video that was published on television uh, here just this past week, he's, he's saying basically in that that Allah has decided to pull all the world together under him. And then uh, Mohammed Zahar said this, the entire 510 million square kilometers of planet Earth will come under a system where there is no injustice, no oppression, no Zionism, and no treacherous Christianity. It's fault there, but the ultimate goal is to get here, to get to the bastion of Christianity. Now, I don't know if you've seen, I get on a plane for London tonight. I don't know if you've seen London. I haven't let my wife see it yet, but uh, I don't know if you've seen the streets of London right now, but they're full of uh, Islamic demonstration. Uh, what um, Hitler could not do in the Blitzkrieg, Islam has done without firing a shot. Uh, there's nobody left in the city of London that's English except the royal family when they decide to show up. Uh, it will be in 20 or 30 years an Islamic nation. That church is where Christianity was planted just before it came here. Look at France. Uh, France who has been recently the most atheist country in the world, is now almost wholly under control of Islam. Have you been to France lately? Have you been to England? Have you been to Europe lately? Have you been to Germany? They've got the issue there as well. And you ask yourself, well, you know, well, is that so bad? Well, probably not if you're interested in becoming Islamic. We, in the words of Barney Fife, we got ourselves a situation. <laughs> and that's what he's saying right here. We will not be. There was a Muslim cleric that stood in Times Square this week and said that in the Bronx, in Manhattan, in Queens, and every borough of New York, that inside every home, there will be every knee that will bow to Allah. Now, that's here. That's not somewhere overseas. And what you need to understand is that it is pure and simply an attack on our God. Let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. When the enemy encircles us, pray boldly. Now, that's what you're going to see right here with Asaph. He's going to do that. In fact, listen to what he begins to pray in verse 13. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. He's calling God, there is no help for us unless there is divine intervention. And I'm going to tell you the same. There is no help for us unless there is divine intervention. And divine intervention will not come unless the people of God call to God. 
Now, let me take you back up to verse six and seven and eight because these are the nations that surround Israel at the time. This is who Asaph is referring to. I call them an inner circle of nations. They're nations that touch and border on the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are what I call an outer ring circle of nations because they are off and away at a distance from Israel. Um, but they will come in due time uh, to the land of Israel. This constitutes nations around Israel. The tents of Edom, that's Jordan, uh, and the Ishmaelites, that's Saudi Arabia, um, the descendants of Ishmael, Moab, and the Hagrites. Uh, Moab is Jordan. Hagrites are also there uh, along the area of the border of uh, Jordan and Saudi Arabia, and they are also those uh, descendants uh, of Hagar that are that make up part of Egypt. Gebel um, and uh, Tyre that you see there and Philistia, those are all in Lebanon. That's Lebanon. Ammon and Amalek are also in Jordan. Assyria happens to be the Syria that we know of today where Damascus is capital. Now, those are all the nations that borders. These evidently had moved uh, to surround the nation of God's people in that day and time. And now he's pointing this out prophetically. They're going to come and they will surround the nation of Israel in a latter time. And so he prays for God to deal with them. Now, you say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher, because you know, Egypt and Jordan have peace treaties with Israel. Let me tell you something. If Saudi Arabia does what it is indicating, they were almost ready to sign the Abraham Accord with Israel. Since last Saturday, Saturday a week ago, they have pulled back away from that and have re-entered into talks with their great enemy, Iran. If Saudi Arabia, who is the home of the most sacred site, the burial place of Muhammad, or the burial place of their God, if, if they are going to side with Iran against Israel, and Iran has stated overnight that Israel must get out of Gaza or risk their intervention. If Saudi Arabia sides with that, the peace treaty between Jordan and Israel and Egypt and Israel is moot. They will not be able to withstand the pressure that the Arab nations will bring on them. And so he begins to pray, and look at what he prays in verse 9 and verse 10. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Now, what you the background of that, I'll just give it to you because it's kind of hard to uh, understand what he's saying there. He's describing the battle that took place between Deborah in the book of Judges and the Midianites. What happened was uh, they were attacked, and as they were attacked by their enemy, their enemy had 900 chariots, and uh, what happened was God caused such a downpour of rain that all the chariots were stuck in the mud and the Hebrew archers were able to just shoot the enemy and defeat them. 
That's what he's praying. He goes back to the book of Judges and how God delivered them then with a torrent of rain at Kishon. You come to verse 11 and verse 12, and he says, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their princesses like Zeb and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. That goes back to Gideon and to Gideon's defeat of, of uh, the Midianites. Now, why these two events? Why this event under Deborah? Why this event under Gideon? Because these two nations at these two different times were coming to take over the land of Israel. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. The Arab world basically says that. Let us wipe Israel off the face of the map. Let it be no more Jew. And then let's turn and kill the great Satan. Who's the great Satan? Here we are. Here we are. And sometimes some of us can act a little devilish, can't we? Well, well let me get off of that um, and just share with you. He says what you need to do in times like this is you need to pray real hard. But now this is the thing I want you to see. All of that is kind of introduction to the last and the shortest point. And it's this, when you're encircled by your enemies, have a deep devotion of commitment to evangelism. Amen. Now look, listen to what he says. Fill their faces with dishonor. Why? Why is he praying? What does he ultimately want? That they may seek your name. O Lord. Do you see the, the, the word O Lord, the noun right there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the covenant name that was given to Moses at the burning bush. He's saying that they may seek your name, O Lord, that they may enter into covenant, not against you and against us, but that they may enter into the covenant you have made with all people if they'll come to you. He's wanting them to come to the Lord. He's wanting the name of the Lord to be lifted up. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. He says, God, ultimately, he says, I, I, I want us to be safe. I want you to protect us. I want you to guard us. I want you to deliver us. But God, ultimately, the great desire here is not to kill our enemies, but to convert our enemies, to bring them to you in covenant the way we're in covenant to you to bring them to the place where they acknowledge that their God is not a God. He is no God, but that you are God and you are the most high over all the earth. That's what you do when your enemies encircle you. That's what you do. You come to the place where you pray for them and your prayer is not just that for God to just wipe them out, but for God to get them saved. And he'll never get them saved without our witness. I have, uh, over the last two weeks, I have been, seems like everywhere, 
But in the, in the last week, I have preached in uh, I preached here on Sunday morning and was in Hartzell Sunday night and in some place that began with an L in Alabama Monday night. And then I was in South Carolina Wednesday night. And I want to tell you something. Everywhere I go, people, people ask, and I, I've, I've said this thing to you before, people ask about three questions to me. Number one, what's going to happen next? What's next? And we don't know what's next, but we're all anxious about it. Though we don't know what's going to happen, we are honestly believing something is about to happen. E even all in the middle of this, aren't you waiting till you get out of here that you can get back on your on your telephone and find what has happened now? What's happening next? Um, I don't know, but the world sits on a powder keg. That's for certain. Will Iran get involved in this? If Iran gets involved in this, we have, we have two carrier groups in the Mediterranean now. And I don't know if you've seen it because not much news is given to this, but we've just sent the Ronald Reagan now sitting off the coast of Korea. You ever wonder about these things? Why that? Well, who knows? The special envoy, have you seen this this morning? The special envoy to Iran in the administration has just been fired and all of his credentials revoked. Our envoy to Iran, and we understand an invest investigation has begun. Now, let me, let me tell you, folks, there, there's just stuff here that would tend to give you the willies, but that's what I want to close with. I just read a book um, about a month ago. I finished a book by Eric Larson, who is an excellent writer, by the way, called The Splendid and the Vile. And it looked at the life of Churchill and uh, his wife and his children and all of those in his inner circle during the Blitz or during the Battle of Britain, uh, 39 and 40. Never understood how desperate England was at that time. I, I, I knew about, you know, the Battle of Britain. I've read things about it, but I never read how desperate they were really for the United States to enter into the war uh, but through 39 and 40, they were continuously bombed by the Nazis, by the Luftwaffe. One night, October the 15th, 1940, um, a guy by the name of Bruce Barfel, Bruce Barfel, who was an actor who became a journalist, was sitting at the BBC reading the nightly news. The Germans would come any night that they had clear weather and they highly sophisticated at the time. They had radar. We did not in the West. We were desperately trying to figure all of that out. They had radar. They had set up a pattern. Of, they would send in planes with incendiary bombs uh, that would burn a fire. They would lay a track toward whatever they wanted blown up so that the big Nazi bombers, the Luftwaffe bombers, would come in, they could follow the fire and then drop their bombs. One night, a 500-pound delayed reaction bomb fell on the BBC, right in the middle 
of Bruce's broadcast. Seven people were killed, and Bruce sat at his desk, plaster falling out of the ceiling, walls falling around him, dust everywhere, smoke billowing up, and he sits and he continues to read the news, never misses a beat. Doesn't slow up, doesn't stop, doesn't duck, doesn't jump under the desk, nothing. He just continues to read the news. And they say that over the broadcast, you could hear someone come up to him and say, are you okay? And his words were this, it's all right, carry on. It's all right, folks. Carry on, believer. Carry on. Be a part of those who are willing, listen, to share a witness and a testimony in a desperately dark day when the world is looking for an answer. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It's all right. Carry on. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.